poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into the Bohemian Beat. I'm ready with you until the end of the hour. We have a great show lined up today. Joining us soon in the studio is our special friend of the Bohemian Beat, singer-songwriter Andy Yuns-Brown. But first, a little George Orwell. Over the many years of the Bohemian Beat, we have been exploring many themes and ideas presented in Orwell's dystopian novel 1984, published in 1949. This seminal work is perhaps more relevant now than it has ever been. A couple of weeks back, we were talking about the beginning of the book where Winston Smith starts a diary, an act of defiance, for this forbidden object may lead one to committing thought crime. In the following piece that I will read, is, it's from part three, chapter four, and this is where Winston is recuperating after being tortured he is now willing to admit that whatever they say is true. And this is just before he gets taken to room 101. His mind grew active. He sat down on the plank bed, his back against the wall and the slate on his knees, and set to work deliberately at the task of re-educating himself. He had capitulated. That was agreed. In reality, as he saw now, he had been ready to capitulate long before he had taken the decision, from the moment when he was inside the Ministry of Love. And yes, even during those minutes when he and Julia had stood helpless while the iron voice from the telescreen told them what to do, he had grasped the frivolity, the shallowness of his attempt to set himself up against the power of the party. He knew now that for seven years the Thought Police had watched him like a beetle under a magnifying glass. There was no physical act, no words spoken aloud that they had not noticed, no train of thought that they had not been able to infer. Even the speck of whitish dust on the cover of his diary they had carefully replaced. They had played soundtracks to him, shown him photographs. Some of them were photographs of Julia and himself. Yes, even. He could not fight against the party any longer. Besides, the party was in the right. It must be so. How could the immortal collective brain be mistaken? By what external standard could you check its judgments? Sanity was statistical. It was merely a question of learning to think as they thought, 
Only... The pencil felt thick and awkward in his fingers. He began to write down the thoughts that came into his head. He wrote first in large, clumsy capitals. Freedom is slavery. Then almost without a pause, he wrote beneath it. Two and two make five. But then there came a sort of check. His mind, as though shying away from something, seemed unable to concentrate. He knew that he knew what came next, but for the moment, he could not recall it. When he did recall it, it was only by consciously reasoning out what it must be. It did not come of its own accord. He wrote, God is power. He accepted everything. The past was alterable. The past had never been altered. Oceania was at war with East Asia. Oceania had always been at war with East Asia. Jones, Arison and Rutherford were guilty of the crimes they were charged with. He had never seen the photograph that disproved their guilt. It had never existed. He had invented it. He remembered remembering contrary things, but those were false memories, products of self-deception. How easy it all was. Only surrender and everything else followed. It was like swimming against a current that swept you backwards however hard you struggled. And then suddenly, deciding to turn around and go with the current instead of opposing it. Nothing had changed except your own attitude. The predestined thing happened in any case. He hardly knew why he had ever rebelled. Everything was easy, except anything could be true. The so-called laws of nature were nonsense. The law of gravity was nonsense. Al-Qaeda. 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 If I wished, O'Brien has said, I could float off this floor like a soap bubble, Winston worked it out. If he thinks he floats off the floor and if I simultaneously think I see him do it, then the thing happens. Suddenly, like a lump of submerged wreckage, breaking beneath the surface of water, the thought burst into his mind. It doesn't really happen. We imagine it. It is hallucination. He pushed the thought under instantly. The fallacy was obvious. It was presupposed that somewhere or another, outside oneself, there was a real world where real things happened. But how could there be such a world? What knowledge have we of anything, save through our own minds? All happenings are in the mind. Whatever happens in all minds truly happens. He had no difficulty in disposing of the fallacy, and he was in no danger of succumbing to it. He realised, nevertheless, that it ought to never have occurred to him. The mind should develop a blind spot whenever a dangerous thought presented itself. The process should be automatic, instinctive. Crime stop, they called it in Newspeak. Or should we powder our noses? 
escape us. Give me steel, give me steel, give me pulses unreal. He'll build a glass asylum with just a hint of mayhem. He'll build a better whirlpool. We'll be living from sin. David Bowie with Big Brother from his 1974 concept album Diamond Dogs, considered a marriage of Orwell's novel 1984 and his own glam-tinged vision of post-apocalyptic world. And before that, by the composer Peter Eliakim Torsig with his piece 1984 George Orwell from his album 101 Soundbite Symphonies, a celebration of short attention span. I would now like to welcome our special guest and friend of the Bohemian Beat, Andy Yuns-Brown, singer-songwriter with his band, Andy Yuns-Brown and Cosmic, which has produced two critically acclaimed double albums, Letting Go, released in 2012, and Sunshine Avenue, released in 2014, which we have featured in past shows. Andy's current project is in follow-up to his two double albums, a musical feature film script titled Hell is Light, which is currently in pre-production. Andy, nice to have you back on the Bohemian Beat. Always a pleasure. Excellent. We are going to stay with Orwell. Andy, I know that George Orwell's 1984 is one of those impact books. What was the impact on you then Okay, let me tell you my 1984 story. Uh, It's... uh, it happens in 1984, and I'm 14 years old. My mum was a promoter at a local nightclub, and 
she'd often come home, you know, on a on a weeknight, and she'd have all kinds of colourful characters, and uh, yeah, sometimes I'd get up and enjoy their conversation or you know whatever. Sometimes I'd sleep through it, but on this particular night, I was uh, woken up by this German man, Dieter, and he was breathing his whiskey and cigarettes on me in my bed, which, you know, was very frightening for a 14-year-old boy. And he, he was saying to me, you must read 1984. You must read 1984. And, um, and I was shocked, as you can imagine. I didn't understand what he was saying. And then he was saying, your mum tells me you're, you, you like to read, you must read 1984. Anyway, I, 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 I closed the door and mum came and took him away and apologised and I went to sleep. But he came round the next day and apologised and he said, look, I'm really sorry and he, he gave me this copy of the book. And I read the book and it, uh, of course, changed my life and you know made me, I was a reader beyond that point. I don't know that I fully understand understood you know all the every, all, all the finer points of the book at the time but it was enough to really set my my mind on fire and it's one of those books that stayed with me for life i i think it's interesting to hear you you read from it and when you told me the theme of your show i did have a a little squeeze at the the book one more time and mm-hmm. uh uh and i think it's one of those books that really does speak for itself i mean what can you say about this book you know, all you want to say is exactly what Dita said to me. You must read 1984. And that's you what we need to say to everybody out there. You must read 1984. <laughs> Everyone must read 1984. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess uh, in, in regards to then moving on to my latest uh, creative undertaking, which is titled Hell is Light, uh, which actually comes from the German word uh, translated to English. Uh, I remember f- when I when I asked a, a German speaker one time what what the word for light was, and they said hell, and I and I asked them to spell it, and they spelled it out, and I was gobsmacked. I was like, oh, you know, um, I guess for us, you know, or me, you know. Hell, hell for would be darkness or this you know I guess you know there's fire and brimstone perhaps in the Christian version of it but you know this idea of banishment and you know um and and the opposite of light and so it created a question in me and 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 I guess the script took off from from that point actually uh, uh just uh you know on a bit of a tangent it was actually a conversation with uh joseph campbell who i always loved reading and there's another series of books everyone must read which is the masks of god series but uh, in in an interview joseph campbell was talking once about romeo and juliet and banishment this concept of banishment and he he talked about uh the myth of the fall of lucifer uh, and, you know, who was the bearer of light and God's favourite angel and all that. And he referred to, you know, there's there's many sort of versions of the story. He referred to a Persian uh, version of the story where, uh, you know, God tests the angels and says, you know, now you must love man, my creation, as, you know, love and serve man as you love and serve me. And 
in this version of the story, Lucifer saw it as a test and said, you know, no, I could never love God. I could never love man or serve man as I love you, God. And, you know, for going against God's command, he was banished to never again look upon that which he loved, which was God and, and heaven. And so I found that, you know, when, when Joseph Campbell told that story, I found that so, such a beautiful and deep um, understanding of, of, of what hell actually can be, you know, that sense of being banished from that which you love. And so it's a love story. So it's basically um, my, my film and my new album is, uh, is a love story that looks at, it's a dystopian love story, just like 1984, basically. <laughs> and so I guess that's where we share common ground. Uh, it's set in a in a in a dystopian world. My dystopian world is one of uh, drug addiction and you know the ice epidemic uh, prevalent in Australia. And I wanted to address address these issues that are facing us, and they're sort of they're somehow weaved into our tapestry, you know, of our whole being with each other. And um, and I think there's many reasons for that and there's many reasons for alienation and why we feel uh alienated and why we seek some kind of transcendence from that alienated space and so i guess that's my connection with yeah. 1984 and, and we and have and a track also, from it yeah and yeah. it's also like a reaction isn't it like the the characters are reacting to this oppressiveness that you that you have in um hell is light that you kind of weave through the whole thing you really feel this sense of of sort of this external oppression that we, we're all kind of experiencing Absolutely. right now. I, I guess that comes to me too from, you know, reading books like even The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein, which I, I felt was an incredible yeah. book. And, um, you know, just understanding that idea of disaster capitalism and, and, and also the idea of controlling through creating fear, you know, creating an environment of fear which I felt, especially under, you know, Tony Abbott, there was a real, it was just all pervasive and it was just this fear and paranoia everywhere. And um, I get, and, and I wrote this track, which we're about to play, which is still not um, completely finished. It's, uh, you know, it's still uh, not, you know, not mixed to its, you know, perfection. But uh, I think you'll get a really se a good sense of the kind of energy uh that uh, was manifested in those early beginnings of, of writing this film and writing this script. Yeah, uh, it's called Rising with the Mercury. Refugees for fleeing from the terror. You said that things had 
this is a bohemian beat and you heard it first on community radio rising with the mercury andy yuns brown who we're chatting with today on the bohemian beat wow continuing on with 1984 you know the other week we were talking about the forbidden object of the diary in the novel 1984 and almost like six years ago google chairman eric schmidt said we don't need you to type at all because we know where you are. We know where you've been. We can more or less guess what you're thinking about. So we don't need to be tortured into submissive, non-thinking zombie citizens like Paul Winston Smith. No, we just, we're just happy to be under this constant psychological manipulation to conform to being mindless consumers, happy and compliant within mental structures designed to continuously exploit. <laughs> and, and what do you think will happen once we inevitably cross over into this all-consuming media realm of artificial intelligence and virtual reality when machines and smart digital assistants from Amazon and Google will know literally everything you do and store all that information for instantaneous retrieval in the cloud. You'll get ads whispered in your ears and beamed directly to your eyeballs by augmented reality glasses. Anyway, I think, Andy, <laughs> it's time for you to read some 1984. Okay. Um, did you have something particular in mind? No, or? whatever you wanted oh, okay. to read. Yeah, I'll I'm, just I'm say, putting in the spot. I'll just say on that, that was, that's really, uh, you have really hit the spot there. I, I think, you know, sometimes I really like that, you know, Google knows what I'm looking for. <laughs> <laughs> so there's positives. I mean, you know, humans, we had a we had a we had a good go at it, but we're far from perfect. Maybe the organic machines will will do a better job of uh, you know taking care of nature and sustainability and all of that. But that's not what it's about. about. That's a problem, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Okay, well, while you're going to that, I'm going to add one more as you're looking for a piece to read. Yeah. Now, how's this? Ashley Madison, that dating site for cheaters, they've admitted instead of using real women looking for adultery, these unsuspecting men were actually conversing with virtual computer programs. Yes, folks, 37 million cheating spouses were talking to bots fembots, a software application that runs an automated task or conversation over those internet forums, which are meant to feel like you're chatting or flirting back and forth with a human. So think of all that time you spent trying to be witty, seductive, enticing, and was all to those impersonal algorithms. Or you could probably call it a highly sophisticated interactive questionnaire. So you have been cyberbot conned and how much money have people parted with? So anyway, back to this dystopian present. Big brother can now love you back. Ooh. And you're willingly con to receive such attention. Okay, Andy, what are you going to read? Well, I, I, you know, as I said, you know, this idea of uh, a dystopian world and a love story within a dystopian world, I find that also very interesting. Uh, um, that, you know, just this idea about platonic love, I guess. And, you know, one thing about platonic love that when you really get down to it uh, is that, you know, if you read Plato, yeah, the idea of, of platonic love really is love of state first. You know, no love of the person, you know, that's that's forbidden. Love of the state and, love, you know, you reproduce, you know, um, uh, for the state, you know, you don't reproduce, anything else is a selfish love. and. I think 
because that that's one of the I think of uh, Viktor Frankl actually, and he's um, uh, he's quote you know everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of all human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way, and you know I guess you know again referring back to the film that's for me what the film's about it's about choices and consequences. And I think of like a, a positive existentialism, you know, which, you know, um, that that always gives me strength and, and a sense of, of 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 freedom. And, and you know, is that you're I guess, you know, uh, that's what inspires me because, yeah, there's something in in, uh, you know, I was thinking about Orwell and I was thinking about, you know, postmodernism as well. And just, you know, there's as you were saying, you know, uh, you know, it's almost like we go willingly into it. You know, it's like we we, we become so I- ironic. You know, meaning becomes so passe. It's like, you know, we're so cynical that kind of doesn't even matter anymore. You know, and I, I find that yeah, kill me slowly, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, you know, it's almost like a, a joke. You know, um, uh, in a way. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I do. I still do like to believe that we do have some sort of sense of freedom to choose uh how we how we do respond to all of this so because it's not it, too late yeah no i don't i don't think so no i no, i agree it's not too late I we, we have to so. we have to be positive but i mean but orwell was 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 showing us the, me- the the to me the whole mechanical way in which the big brother and all that sort of stuff works but you're going to read a piece from I, the book i am yeah um i just i just was it's just a little little bit at the start where it says the ministry of it's just to reflect on on love in that that situation the ministry of love was was the really frightening one there were no windows in it at all winston had never been inside the ministry of love nor within half a kilometer of it it was a place impossible to enter except on official business and then only by penetrating through a maze of barbed wire entanglements steel doors and hidden machine gun nests. Even the streets leading up to its outer barriers were roamed by guerrilla-faced guards in black uniforms armed with jointed truncheons. And I just love the poetry in that. I think, you know, it's, it's another aspect of Orwell. He has an ability to communicate ideas uh, so poetically, and it's one thing I don't, I don't know that we talk about that often of him as a writer as well. I, I loved Down and Out in Paris and London as mm, well for that reason. Book. Like his ability to communicate really kind of dense political ideas, but uh, you know so succinctly. Yeah, well, he he actually had the experience. So he he was out there, um, you know, in the grassroots, looking at the poverty. He went over to the um, Participated in the Spanish Civil War, um, fighting for freedom and democracy. So he, he's really walked the talk, you know, yes. and all those experiences. So, he's, but it's all in this book. That's why it's just so seminal. Do you have another piece? From um, yeah, I was going to continue on about with the Platonic love um, on page seventy-five. When he had gone with that woman, it had been his first lapse in two years or thereabouts. Consorting with prostitutes was forbidden, 
Of course. But it was one of those rules that you could occasionally nerve yourself to break. It was dangerous, but it was not a life and death matter. To be caught with a prostitute might mean five years in a forced labour camp, not more, if you had committed no other offence. No other offence. And it was easy enough, provided that, that you could avoid being caught in the act. The poorer quarters swarmed with women who were, already, who were ready to sell themselves. Some could even be purchased for a bottle of gin, which the proles were not supposed to drink. Tactically, the party was even inclined to encourage prostitution as an outlet for instincts which could not be altogether suppressed. Mere debauchery did not matter very much, so long, it, so long as it was furtive and joyless, and only involved the women of a submerged or despised class. The unforgivable crime was promiscuity between party members. But though this was one of the crimes that the accused in the great purges invariably confessed to, it was difficult to imagine any such actual thing happening. The aim of the party was not merely to prevent men and women from forming loyalties that it might not be able to control. Its real undeclared purpose was to remove all pleasure from the sexual act. And I think... Yeah, again... Control. Yeah, but also <clears throat> that removal from nature and removal mm. from your own instincts. And again, that's what it comes back to for me. I think again and again, you know, this idea of being in touch with your uh, intuition uh, is uh, is really important. I mean, you know, uh, you know our dreams, uh, you know, this inner world that is is truly our 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 haven it's it's like it's a it's a world of freedom still you know i mean uh you know i think of thought crime and i think you know we're committing it we're com- we're, we're committing it now you know Don't live on air, you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're, you know, they're not at the doors yet so we're, we're you know there's there's um there's freedom still that we're enjoying but uh you know the world of our dreams the world of our imagination art these things they're a bastion of freedom and and i i uh, hope that uh, you know that those out there listening today, you know, take up those wonderful, you know, uh, privileges and 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 express them. Express yourself in art freely, and you know, enjoy your dreams, your nightly dreams. You caught the morning train, but it feels just like a funeral is taking place. Everyone all dressed in grey Heads bowed to the eulogy And news on the parade Seems like we've lost our eyes Replaced it with spectacles Cause the obvious is blundered Every paradise has a snake Every promise is bait With some hidden hook inside
Produced at Bay FM and Byron Bay and heard nationally across a community radio network. And today we are speaking with musician and multidisciplined artist Andy Hyuns Brown. And we just heard another new track called Holiday. Holiday. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Andy, we're just, we're just going through it here, aren't we? <laughs> Let, let's talk about defining moments. Okay, sure. Um, I guess, you know, one of those defining moments you know, for me was September 11, uh, 2001, as it was for, I imagine, you know, most of the Western world. Um, uh, It was such a shocking sight to see. And uh, so much came from that, including, you know, you know, like giving up of our, some of our uh, freedoms as a result um, in the name of, of security, national security. And uh, I guess, yeah, I remember the night very well. I remember my American friend Damien calling me and saying, are you watching this? You know, um, World War Three's just started. And I turned it on and I, I just couldn't believe it, you know. And it was so frightening. It was so frightening. And I can't imagine. I had friends there in New York at the time. And, and I can't imagine how just shocking it was to them and of course i mean if you if, if you know like we we, we 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 don't think about you know baghdad and you know some of these other places uh that are, that, that you know experience you know the trauma of war you know over and over but for us anyway you know even though that wasn't a, 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 you know an, an attack on australia it, it it felt very much a big blow to our sort of sense of security it was massive mm. See, so, so I, I find that it's actually a great example of the sort of Orwellian propaganda, you know, what I quoted before, the law of gravity rendered nonsense because we all watched what happened and yet our eyes deceived us because mathematically it's un- impossible for three buildings to fall in exactly the same way. Well, they didn't even fall, they collapsed in a manner so fast it was only a little bit... Um, f- faster than freefall there was no resistance from the bottom floors and all three buildings just pretty much disintegrated controlled demolition 
but yet everyone that sees that will turn around and somehow justify the official story. So, I mean, I find that extraordinary. Two 110-storey buildings collapsed and a 47-storey World Trade Centre. That Yeah, I, I guess for me with that, I mean, because that's really... You know, so, you know, it's such a yeah. As you say, it's a really powerful image. You know, and we've all got it in our minds. Um, and it's one of those shaping. You know, it, it shapes us all. It but shapes the law of gravity was rendered nonsense. Yeah, and, and <laughs> but you know, for me, I guess I, I you know I don't go you know because what happened after the planes flew into the towers, you, you know, that's another story. But I remember Chomsky talking about it, and um, and I find him quite a reasonable chap. And, you know, he was asked about that, you know, he's asked. And he, he, he didn't really go into it too much, but what he, he did say was, yeah, it's very dangerous to to think that, you know, America attacked themselves, you know, like it, it then it lessens the impact or the, the potential harm of this very real. Um, uh, and, you know, because he's always been, you know, a strong uh, critic of American foreign policy. Yeah, he says, you know, that that foreign policy and ours to our involvement, you know, in in the Gulf War, et cetera, et cetera, you know, um, uh, has created enemies, strong enemies and dangerous enemies. And so, you know, I guess I, I think re- regardless of, you know, uh, what happens after the, the attack, I think even, you know, you still have to... Uh, it's it's dangerous to think that you know that that it wasn't an actual terrorist attack. That's all I think, and I think Chomsky's kind of. But I think that's great because it's it's dangerous, and that's why people have to keep questioning. And what I found really interesting about Chomsky is that he he keeps putting it back onto what happened afterwards. Look at the behaviour yes. afterwards, and, and it I, starts to actually build a very interesting picture. That's what I wanted to talk about. You know, I, you know, in The Shock Doctrine, Naomi Klein talks about it. And again, you know, she's more interested in, in what happens after it as well. And I think that's more interesting. I think it's the same thing. It's like with, you know, you know Katrina, um, you, know, uh, you know, tsunamis, et cetera, et cetera. It's about disaster capitalism and taking full advantage of whatever disasters do happen. And uh, that brings me to um, yeah, uh, two things. I think of Robert McNamara. Uh, almost, I'm almost there. I, I just want to read this, uh, you know, from the Shock Doctrine. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'll just read it. It says, when Rumsfeld made his entrance, oh, can I just say about Donald Rumsfeld, there's a great documentary, if you ever want to see it, called, uh, I think it's Known unknown knowns or something like that and it's uh, it looks at uh, and, and um, Donald Rumsfeld and one of his expressions where he talks about known knowns known unknowns and unknown unknowns and it's so fantastic and I, I, he's such a charismatic and such an intelligent man and I never wanted to feel that about a man like Donald Rumsfeld because he's easier to just make him a monster. And perhaps he's a sociopath or, you know, whatever, you know, charisma and charm and the ability to, you know, charm people is, you know, can be, you know, um, belonging to, you know, narcissists and all kinds of things. But, you know, I was blown away by by it. And, and I imagine that if I was in a conversation with him, he'd have me thinking two and two is five as well. Um, And, you know, um, but anyway, here we go with um, some Naomi Klein. Sorry to tangent. When Rumsfeld made his entrance, we politely stood up and sat down. 
it rapidly became clear that this was not a resignation and it was most certainly not a pep talk. It may have been the most extraordinary speech ever given by a US Secretary of De Defence and it happened on September 10, 2001, the day before September 11. The topic today is an adversary that poses a threat, a serious threat, to the security of the United States of America. This adversity is one of the world's last bastions of central planning. It governs by dictating five-year plans from a single capital. It attempts to impose the demands across time zones, continents, oceans and beyond with brutal consistency. It stifles free thought and crushes new ideas. It disrupts the defence of the United States and places the lives of men and women in uniform at risk. Perhaps this adversity sounds like the former Soviet Union, but that enemy is gone. Our foes are more subtle and implacable today. That adversary is closer to home. The adversary is the Pentagon bureaucracy. As Rumsfeld's rhetoric gimmicked revealed itself, the faces of the audience went stony. Most of the people listening had devoted their careers to fighting the Soviet Union and didn't appreciate being compared to the, the commies at this stage of the game. Rumsfeld wasn't finished. We know the adversary. We know the threat. And with the same firmness of purpose that any effort against a determined adversary demands, we must get at it and stay at it. Today, we declare war on bureaucracy. And uh, I think that's fascinating, you know, for the fact that historically it happened the day before the event, but also because it's exactly that, that you know, that Robert McNamara, Milton Friedman, laissez-faire sort of thinking about privatisation, privatisation, privatisation. And unfortunately, that's the kind of, you know, two plus two equals five. I mean, they put their faith, I'm sure, you know, I, I like to believe anyway that, you know, some of these, you know, uh, people in p positions, you know, technocrats, that they believe they're making, you know, great decisions on behalf of our economy, on behalf of our people, etc., etc., on behalf of the future. They, some of them are quite, you know, um, intelligent people, no doubt. But uh, that blind faith in uh, in uh, that economic rationalism, it's let us down again and again and again. And you know, um, I think you know, disaster capitalism. Uh, it's it's a it's to me it's a no-brainer. It's it, it can only end badly. <laughs> you are listening to the Bohemian Beat, brought to you via the Community Radio Network. And we are speaking with Andy Yuns Brown, singer-songwriter and musician, and poet and multimedia person. He does lots and lots of things screenwriter and he's about to play us a song called Broken Glass late at night she can't find a cab the chill of the wintry streets 
It's like the man that just left The loneliness she feels to her bones She cries cause there ain't no way home The disconnect she feels from it all makes her careless and worn She hides from herself and her pain wherever she can Tonight it will be in a glass and the arms of any other man Love that just feels like a game where she gets trumped again and again Says to herself, nothing changes except for her age. Resting her head in her hands, it slumped at the bar. Lost to her place in this world She don't know how she got here She wonders what else she can do Except celebrate the freedom of losing Somewhere deep inside she can't be truly free. So tonight she'll raise her glass and she'll drink as she toasts to the past. Yeah, tonight she'll raise her glass And she'll drink till there's nothing else left Yeah, tonight she'll break her glass And shatter her illusions Lying on the streets at 4 a.m. Watching the stars spinning This mind-blowing spectacle she's in From Big Bang beginnings She wonders what this chaos can mean as she loses all sight of her dreams 
Beautiful. Broken glass. Thank you so much, Andy Yarns-Brown. That has been absolutely special. You've heard it first on the Bohemian Beat. Thank you so much oh, for joining pleasure. us. Yes. The I, hour I, has I just wanted to evaporated. bring it back to, you know, I was raised by a single mum. I guess that was part of the, the thing that inspired the story as well, you know, my own life uh, journey. And I, I think, you know, you know, these we all get hit by... Uh, these, you know, these uh, struggles that, you know, these political struggles, these big decisions that are made, you know, outside of our control, they do affect us. And, and, uh, and you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, the ice epidemic, alcoholism, gambling, all these things that we do to seek some sort of transcendence over our reality, you know, um, because we're forced to live sometimes in these really unlivable situations. And that's what drives me and makes me passionate to bring about change and and try to encourage others to stand up and express themselves and that's what we love about your music thank you so much andy hyuns brown well we have run out of time thank you so much for listening today on the bohemian beat Um, We'll be back again next week, same beat time, same bohemian frequency. For more information, check out the website, thebohemianbeat.com. And we're going to end with a track by Andy called Everybody's Right. Thank you for joining us on the Bohemian Beat. Like a jacaranda in 
friend, your penny, through my It was a beautiful day, it was a beautiful life. Nobody was wrong, me and my brother was right. So I took a deep breath, got stolen a kiss. They were all born angels into this. Everybody's right. Everybody's right.